you're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Denny O'Neill, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hi there, this is the Epic Marvel Podcast, and I'm your host, Curtis Findlay. And first of all, I want to apologize to all of our listeners who have been waiting anxiously for the next episode. I've just had some scheduling conflicts with my with my co-hosts and some of the people I'm trying to interview, which has delayed kind of everything. So um, while we're waiting for that, I'm going to give you this interview here with Denny O'Neill. I talked to him for nearly two hours, I think. Maybe it was a little bit over two hours. I called him to talk about his run on Iron Man, but uh, before we even got to Iron Man, we spent about an hour talking about a ton of other stuff. So this is the first half of our conversation that doesn't have anything to do with Iron Man. Um, In fact, it's not really a companion interview to any of the episodes, so I don't feel bad for just kind of slotting it in here. I think you'll all enjoy it. Um, He goes into good detail about... Um, just the state of comic books when he was getting into it in the 60s, uh, talking about the invention of the comic code and um, giving big praise uh, to Stan Lee and Julie Schwartz um, and telling how they revolutionized the the comic book um, industry in in the 60s. And uh, and yeah, it's just uh, uh, quite quite fascinating. He once he <laughs> once he got started talking, I couldn't even get a question in. He just kept on going, which is which is great. But it meant that we didn't stay on track for Iron Man. But that's okay, because this is still really cool to listen to. Now, thank you to everybody who is a Patreon supporter. If you are a Patreon supporter, then you will get a slightly different version of this interview. Um, There are a few swear words sprinkled up through this interview here, but uh, I had to cut off the last, I'd say, maybe about three or four minutes of of this half of the section because he starts talking about the use of swear words uh, with the comic code in place. And um, it's a little bit too salty. I just don't want to have to put that explicit uh, label on iTunes. So I'm cutting that out. Um, If you are a Patreon supporter, you can listen to the whole thing uh, on our uh, Patreon site, uncut, because I don't have to worry about that that label right there. So... um, you can pledge five bucks and not only get this interview, but a few others and um, and some other cool stuff that's up there from the various other people who are part of the Thunder Quack podcast network. So anyway, that is enough from me. Uh, you'll get the second half of the of this interview when we talk about Iron Man. Eventually, uh, it will not be until we until I talk about that episode with James in a little while. Hopefully, that's coming pretty soon. So stay tuned for that. And here it is. Enjoy my interview with Denny O'Neill. I'm putting together an episode about your run on Iron Man. So I'm going to, I'll touch on a few things, kind of get a little bit of a brief history of you, um, and then kind of dive into some more specifics about Iron Man. And uh, yeah, we'll go from there. We'll see where the where the conversation leads us. <coughs> have various versions of the history of me, and some of them aren't terribly exciting. Basically, I met Roy Thomas when I was a journalist in Missouri, and his family uh, subscribed to the paper. Uh, Roy got... uh, I did a couple of stories for the summer editions, uh, on comic books, that was because I had to fill the children's page twice a month. And during the summer, that was hard to do. There were no school activities to write about. And I was, you know, a lonely guy. I had taken this job after being a journalist in the Navy. And it was a good entry-level job, but I knew nobody in that extremely conservative 
southern Missouri town. So <laughs> I started, like, you know, hanging around newsstands, and I saw comic books. Bought some, read them, liked them, did some stories for the paper. Roy got in touch with me on my way back to Cape Girardeau, this little town from St. Louis. Uh, one Sunday afternoon, I had been visiting girlfriend and family. I stopped, and I thought maybe I can get a, an interview with this guy. So Roy opened up an incredible world to me. He was a uh, high school teacher who was um, transitioning from being a, a, a high school teacher to a comic book editorial assistant. He had was co-editor of what was, at the time, almost unquestionably the best fanzine. Well, before I walked into his apartment, I didn't know there were such things as fanzines. But he gave me a lot of copies of it, and I was impressed. He talked for about two hours and just opened up this subculture. As a kid, I'd been a big comics fan, but we there were no such things as fans then. And besides, I was only six or so. But I traded comics with the other kids on Claxton Avenue, up and down during summer afternoons, up and down the block, stopping at the houses of the kids I knew that were comics readers. And, you know, the 10 cents that my father spent to buy me a copy of Batman or Superman after Sunday Mass, I might, you know, get 20 good reads out of that. So, but we weren't worried about being collectors. So I hung out with Roy for a couple of Tuesday afternoons when I didn't have to work, and he went off to New York. And I did some very stupid things. Uh, primarily, I... <clears throat> Well, every day we, uh, all the cops had to look on at this clipboard, which had, you know, stuff they needed to know to do their job, street closings and that kind of thing. So one day I wrote a phony Associated Press story about how Martin Luther King was coming to Cape Girardeau to demonstrate. Uh -oh. And I slipped it onto that clipboard and I went about my business, which was always the same. You go to the hospitals, you go to the uh, firehouse, you go to the cops, and then you go back and write the boilerplate stories. Uh, and then maybe they, in the afternoons you got a good job. As you got to cover something interesting. I got back there to the office, and the re local radio guy called and said, I don't know if you had anything to do with that Martin Luther King business, and I don't want to know, but if you did, do not admit it. Under no circumstances, admit that you did that. And then he hung up. <laughs> and going back to my, I rented a little two-room shack behind the police station, going after, after work, going back there, the head of detectives was coming out of my little shack. Obviously, he had searched the joint, but I may have been a rebel hippie, but I was not a pot-smoking rebel hippie, so he didn't find anything but a lot of books. But that had that absolutely killed my future in that town. Uh the next morning, I was taken off the police beat and put on the district news beat, which mostly meant rewriting stuff that the stringers sent in. You know, the Ladies Baptist Society had a, a supper uh, <laughs> last Thursday night. Right. And, you know, the really exciting Maybe it stuff. wasn't in English, and it certainly didn't always... Uh, lead with the lead, but uh, I, it was clear that that editor, who was a conservative man, but a decent guy, I mean, his politics were certainly not mine. The town was very conservative. There was a 
literally a line, and on the far side of the line, there was no pavement. There was very little indoor plumbing. Uh, it was called Smelterville, and it was the black ghetto, and it was really a ghetto in the purest sense of the word. Uh, so the other liberal on the paper, uh, Arlene Southern, the uh, women's page editor, and I were helping the residents of Smelterville sort of sub Rosa without lifting our heads above the ground of uh, foxholes. Uh, so that I got back, I I was I was clearly finished, and that getting fired from that job might have made it hard to get another one. Uh, then I was working late, and I answered a call. Somebody had killed themselves in one of the local parks. I went to cover that. Uh, a week earlier, Roy had sent me the Marvel Writers Test. And what this was about was Roy came to New York to work for Mark Weisinger, who was doing the Superman books at D.C. I don't know if you've ever heard anything about uh, Mark. He, uh, well, he, he, he got very prosperous, but he would, might not have been anybody's candidate for nicest guy on the block. <laughs> yeah. And so Roy lasted two weeks. I've seen a lot of Roy over the years. I don't know the exact circumstances of his leaving, but he immediately got hired by Stan Lee. Marvel Comics was beginning to happen. It was really going places, and they had hired Steve Skates. I never, actually, Steve, I, you know, got to be pretty close friends with. I don't know the exact circumstances of his leaving, but Roy was given the job of replacing him. So they put together the Marvel Writers Test, and it was four, as I'm remembering it, four copies of the Fantastic Four by Jack Kirby, whom I had not heard of, and my task, should I choose to accept it, was to add words to those pictures. Well, okay. <laughs> right. Who wouldn't do that? You know, I, speak, I had often Tuesday afternoons with nothing to do, and I, I was not exactly working myself to death. Uh, so, sure, <laughs> I'll write copy for this stuff. And I sent it off, and then I did pull my Martin Luther King caper. And meanwhile, my girlfriend, Anne, had left for Boston on a full scholarship. She was going to study philosophy. So I got back to the office one night and called. Things were not good. She, there had been a snafu with regard to her scholarship money. And part of it that would have enabled her to live as opposed to pay tuition didn't come through. So she was from a radical background. Uh, her parents were protesters in, in World War II when it was not at all popular. So she was stuck in Boston knowing no one with no money. So she was living off what she could managed to shoplift, and oh, by the way, she's also very sick. So that was one little <laughs> piece of information I had that night, and the other was that Stan had liked the test I did, and they were offering me a job as a comic book editorial assistant in New York. Well, So... Okay. So what's your uh, decision then? <laughs> well, it was almost no decision. All that happened when the only two people in the building happened to be Arlene and me. Yeah. So uh, Arlene went, was gone about 20 minutes, came back. She had packed my car. I mean, I had like three changes of clothes. 
And she said, you know, obviously you're going to rescue Anne and take this job. And I said, okay. So off I went at about 10 at night without giving my boss, the conservative but decent John Blue, any notice. I, I wrote him a little note apologizing. And like within an hour or two, my life was utterly changed. I didn't exactly know where the hell Boston was, but I had some vague idea of where the Atlantic Ocean was, and I knew Boston was there. I had been to, I'd actually lived in Boston for three months while the ship I was on was being repaired. Uh, I had been to New York, uh, Rhode Island, places like that. But I figured Boston's a big town. If I aim myself in the right direction, I'm bound to find it. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Just head over there. And uh, about mid-afternoon the following day, the car spewed its engine parts all over an empty highway no, in no. Ohio. Car died. Uh, so, as I said, <laughs> I was traveling light. What I could fit into a Navy duffel bag, I think that was pretty much the extent of my worldly positions, okay. uh, possessions. So I started hitchhiking, started raining, got to Ann's rooming house in Boston, downpour, got into her room, and then the door opened, and it was her landlady who said, I told you no men in this room, you're evicted. So oh. Anne and I were kicked out of her room uh, late evening and in a downpour. Uh, so I, the, the only thing I could think to do is if we hitchhike down to the bus depot or the train depot, we they might let us sleep there overnight. And then maybe we can figure out something in the morning. But uh, the guy who picked us up hitchhiking listened to our story and offered us a room for as long as we needed it. Whoa, that's nice. Uh, which we accepted. He was no, he wanted nothing, no quid pro quo, no sexual shenanigans. He was a, a genuine good Samaritan. So the next morning we began to do what we had to do to get Anne's life in order. She figured she would stay as that, that graduate student until she no longer had to pay back any of the money. I went on to New York and I got to Madison Avenue about nine in the morning and uh, it was kind of quiet, but I got on the subway and went to Marvel Comics at 59th and Madison Avenue, and I went up to where the, their offices were, and there was nobody there at 9.30 in the morning on Monday. <laughs> and then I began to look around, and there was nobody in any of the nearby shops. It was like a twilight zone. Somebody came and kidnapped uh, Midtown Manhattan. Uh, I knew no one. Except I had a name, Flo Steinberg, uh, Stan's secretary, and he often used her name in his kind of chummy text pages. And Flo, bless her, was in the phone book. So I called her, and she told me why nothing was open. It was a Jewish holiday. <laughs> And But she knew where Roy was, East 2nd Street on the Lower East Side. And that way I could hook up with him. He was rooming with a guy named Dave Keller, who died way too young. So I became the third roommate, and Stan and I, or Roy and I, went up to Marvel Comics in the morning, Lexington Avenue subway, and... You know, Within three days, I went from me a very obscure uh, small-town Missouri journalist to a comic book writer, 
who had assumed the response, some of the responsibility for his girlfriend. I was just a completely different person. Yeah. On the outside, and uh, off we went How for six months, and then Stan fired me. By that time, I had a an offspring. I had a baby who was three weeks old. You'll be relieved to know that he's now 50 and doing fine. Oh, great. <laughs> but uh, I don't know why Stan fired me. I know that I did one thing that Flo has written about, so I guess uh, it's not a secret. I used to, uh, I had kind of the guise of a hippie. Now, the first thing that Stan made me do was go with Roy down to Macy's and buy a suit. I had a job where I didn't see another human being or nobody except my office mate from nine to five. Uh... But Stan insisted on suit and tie. So Kirby happened to be in the office working, and I, you know, complained about that, how silly this is to have to dress up to come to a job where nobody will see me. And Jack kind of lost it. He, of course, this is Madison Avenue. Of course you have to dress up. Just a, a clear case of different values. I, I mean, sort of we were both right, and he was probably more right than me. Uh, anyway, I wore little buttons. I still wear them sometimes. Now they're all one thing. They're all peace buttons. At the time, they were, you know, we're hippies, counterculture. Right. So one of them said, let's legalize pot. The background for that was I had sampled pot uh, in college, I knew this. I knew I didn't like it. There was no danger of my ever becoming addicted to pot. Don't like it to this day. On the other hand, it was seemed senseless to make it illegal because, you know, come on. Uh, if, if alcohol, which is a lot more dangerous, is legal, why shouldn't pot be? Right. So I had that button on. Just a button I picked up that morning probably off the dresser and Stan came in and said he said hey what are you wearing today and he looked and it's he looked at the thing on my lapel he tore it off he flung it into a wastebasket and said if you're going to work for me you have to give up some things and that's one of them and he stormed out (laughs) and everybody was real quiet oh boy uh that's not well, that story, I didn't tell it for years, but when other people started telling I mean, I really didn't want to embarrass Stan, and I still don't. We get along very well, but uh, yeah, that story got out, and I guess it's not a secret anymore. Uh, Flo became a friend of Anne's, and later when Anne and I had to split, she became a friend of Mary Friends, who is, I've been, was a childhood sweetheart that I didn't see for 30 years, and now we've been married for almost 30 years. Happy ending to the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the day that Stan dropped the axe on me, with, is since then he has very generously offered to write the introduction to a book that I wrote on writing. And um, in that, he has a, a very different, you know, version of what I just told you. Said, uh, you know, it's, it's we should have never let Danny get away. Uh, and nice. Everybody likes Danny. That's not true. You could ask him a shooter, but, but, you know, he, it was a nice, polite, friendly kind of piece that I appreciated him doing and still do. But at the time, I was a guy with a wife who neither typed nor drive, drove, so, uh, you know, grew up on a farm in, right. near Jefferson City. And... uh 
It was in the middle of a newspaper strike where my saleable skills, such as they were, were a glut on the market. I mean, I, there were like six or seven papers that, you know, like were on strike. Uh, so I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. There was this little cuddly thing at home called the baby, and I had to feed that cuddly little thing. And there was a woman who was really an extraordinary woman, but at the time she was a nursing mother who didn't type. Uh, yeah. <laughs> point for point, probably the worst day of my life. Wow. I've been fired before and since, but not with, you know, a baby. I didn't know from babies anyway. But uh, we started to get lucky. We had gotten married at the Catholic Worker. The Catholic Worker is, well, if you look at the Gotham TV show, there is a character that they are now calling Lee, Lee Tompkins. And she started her tenure on that show as Leslie Tompkins. Right. Well, Anne was the child of Catholic workers. The Catholic worker was the invention of a woman named Dorothy Day, who before she was into her 30s had written a lot. Some college classmate just sent me a collection of her very, very early teenage writing. She was the wild village girl. She was that archetype. Intellectual, uh, loose, wild, allegedly able to drink Eugene O'Neill under the table, but almost from the get-go, very interested in helping the poor. And one of my best friends is John Carter, who is Dorothy's godson, Anne's mother, I think, was Dorothy's best friend, or one of them. And the Catholic worker was like the focal point for a lot of protest action. It was in the middle of the Vietnam War. I don't know how you feel about that, but the consensus is that the protesters were right. It was a war that we had no business being in. I had a brief bit of participation in it while I was in the Navy. I was in the Cuban blockade. Anyway, uh, that was part of the world we were living in. And uh, we decided when we decided to get married that we would do it as a Catholic worker. And there was a guy there who was playing guitar. And that was cool. Uh, I got to know him. He was a freelance science writer, and he had a market. He knew of a real five-and-dime, very low-profile pro publisher who was about to commission a book on presidential elections. Uh, and he needed somebody to write that. Well, and like like a lot of, of lefty radicals I know, has a, a deep and lifelong interest in politics. So she actually knew something about the subject. I made a deal with that guy to, I would give him a chapter a week and he would give me $85 until everything was paid off. I think I was getting something like 3000 for the entire book. So that got us through summer, and then I got some other journalism jobs, and I began to get comic book jobs. Uh, I don't think I ever started out to be a comic book guy, but it it seemed that I had an aptitude for it, and uh, probably even then a liking for it. And it was also probably the most reliable way I had to put applesauce in little Larry O'Neill's sippy cup. So uh, lots of things happened thereafter, but what didn't change was, like it or not, I was in New York and I was a comic book guy. And at that time, 
it was a disreputable job because of all the witch hunts in the the fifties. Uh, a lot of uh, journalism guys, newspaper guys, wrote editorials. It started actually with an editorial in nineteen forty-eight in, I think, the Hartford Courant. So, comic books, great book called Ten Cent Plague, which goes into great uh, detail. But shortly put, uh, Dr. Frederick Wortham came along, and he wrote a book called Seduction of the Innocent, and you can just see that as a 20 cent, 25 cent paperback with the, the babes in lingerie and come in and seduce somebody who is innocent. Uh, Wortham uh, got a lot of publicity. There were juvenile delinquency hearings in New York. You see the establishing shots in any of the Law and Order TV shows. Uh, that's probably the building that the comic book hearings were held. The story that everybody tells about that is that uh, while the background is that uh, Joe McCarthy, who was a senator, a man who would take a drink, very conservative, uh, had gotten a lot of political capital by conducting investigations into the commie menace. I have in my hand a list of 85 known communists in the, and those lists didn't exist. But he got going. Eventually, a judge looked at him over the bench and said, Have you no decency, sir? And that was pretty much the end of McCarthy. But meanwhile, a Democratic senator named uh, Estes Kiefhofer started investigating juvenile delinquency, and he probably he got influenced by oh all these fire-breathing church folk and uh, Wortham, probably some other stuff. And he decided that he would investigate juvenile delinquency with a special emphasis on these comic books. So they convened, and one of the people they called was uh, running a magazine called... uh, Well, he was uh, running a lot of horror magazines. But one of them was a satirical magazine. He was... 23, he had no interest in being a publisher. His father had died suddenly and left him the company. And now he was uh, on heavy medication and was supposed to go and stand in front of the fucking United States Senate and justify his existence. So he was supposed to testify in the morning. And the thing dragged on. By the time he got into that room, it was afternoon. His medication had worn off. And he was being grilled by the U.S. Senate, or a hefty representation thereof. So they said... uh, they held up one of his horror magazine covers, showed uh, a you know, hand holding a severed head. And I said, don't you believe that this is in bad taste, sir? And he said, no, if the hand was a little higher and you could see the blood dripping, that would probably be in bad taste. Well, you could imagine what the tabloids did with that. And the result was that he just went away and... Uh, I keep calling him he. His name is Bill Gaines. Very nice man. Nicest millionaire I ever met. But uh, his, first of all, he tried to convince his fellow publishers that this is nonsense. He's got, they've got this, you know, psychiatrist. We can get a psychiatrist. We can 
counter everything they say, but the publishers caved in, mea culpa, we're evil, don't hit us, and they formed the Comics Code Authority, an official censoring body that was supposed to clean up comics. They were, yeah, there were a, maybe 10% of them that contained material that some people could conceivably consider objectionable. But mostly they were squeaky clean. And Gates or Gaines wasn't having any of it. So he opted out. He took Mad Magazine, changed it into a magazine format instead of a comic book format. And what this enabled him to do was not worry about any censoring bodies. It was a magazine. It wasn't a comic book. It played by its own rules. Uh, that was a very successful thing. Eventually, uh, Gaines was, he took up office space where we were working. We saw him around. He was his own man, but he was a really good guy to work for. And the people who have worked for him said, you know, the best part of your day is if you took a, an idea or drawing into Gaines and you made him laugh, because that, that was really an achievement. Anyway, that, uh, that was the state of funny books when uh, Roy and I and Shortly... Uh, Marv Wolfman, Len Wein, Doug Mensch. I think of Roy and Steve Skates and myself as the second generation or the generation and a half because there were really very few people left after the uh, Keith Offer's guys got through with them, and other people got through with them. And uh, I have never found out exactly how many comic book companies folded. Uh, yeah, Roy usually knows that stuff, but he doesn't know that. Uh, but the guy who wrote the book Tencent uh, Plague, who was an academic named David Haju, he found that over 800 people lost their jobs virtually overnight and never got them back. Wow. Because of this nonsense. The really ironic and bitter P.S. to this is, you know, Wortham was a big media guy, and he got lots of publicity, and his book sold lots of copies. Uh, hooray for Freddy. But about three years ago, a young woman named Carol Tilly, who was getting her doctorate in librarian work from a university in Illinois. She actually went and looked at Wortham's papers. Nobody had bothered to do that in all the years. Really look and see what the fuss is about. She found that he had doctored the books. He had phonied up. He had uh, condensed some interviews and stretched others and all that kind of sleazy crap you do when you're a disreputable journalist. Also, if you just read the book as published, he kind of discounts the idea that uh, control groups have any meaning. I can show you a hundred juvenile delinquents who read these comic books, and I can show you a million Eagle Scouts who read the same comics. Right. This kind of thing sounds like it's factual until you think about it and you realize it means nothing. So Carol, she now has her doctorate. She's a very sweet young lady. And she shot the last uh, bit of validity uh, from under the good doctor's feet. Let me hastily say he is not a black-hearted villain, was not a black-hearted villain. He did a fair amount of good in his life, among which was, well, he had this doctorate in psychology. He gave 
either free medical help to the people in Harlem who needed it, or he charged them a quarter. But he did that, and he fought for integration of the New York City public school system. So in, in many ways, he would have been somebody you'd vote for. But he, I think he also later went after television. He had this blank spot when it came to popular culture. His wife was a fine artist. I think she was a sculptor. And that may be part of this story. I don't know. You know, it's it's possible that people find things just you know, vulgar. It, it's, it seems wrong because I really don't like it. And they may not even be aware that they're having those reactions. But that was it. Boy, comic books were dead for 10 years. Uh, most of the companies went out of business. The ones that survived got by. I think there were only three hero superheroes in continuous publication in that time. But they, you know, they did Roy Rogers and Dale Evans and Hopalong Cassidy and the Fox and the Crow and Jerry Lewis and Binky and his buddies and really anything they could put between covers that would possibly get bought by somebody. Uh, DC was one of the survivors. Plus, it went out of business, but uh, more because they just had decided to go out of business, not because of anything evil. And uh, that was Harvey and Archie, which probably at this moment is doing some horrible thing on television. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Charlton way off there in Connecticut. Nobody knew much about that. And these companies struggled on. I, as I said, liked, in a way, being a comic book, because A, I could meet my obligations, and B, well, I kind of like being disreputable. You know, the hippie rebel, the kid whose mother was told on the day he graduated by the high school principal, we never want to see Dennis here again under any circumstances. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> that disreputable guy mantle fit me pretty well. Uh, and for the most of the rest of the well, you know, Will Eisner, who this is Will Eisner week, and I'm going to do a Facebook live interview on Thursday. I have no idea what that's about. But, he, you know, he went off and went to work for the Pentagon and made a modest fortune and came back to comics when it suited him. As, well, Stan Lee reinvented a way to write comics, and Julie Schwartz reinvented the idea of the superhero. Between the two of them, they are the great towering figures uh, Stan has, is not shy. My wife always gets a kick when we see him in the movies. There he is in the car, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Julie was, uh, if you saw him on the subway, you'd say middle management insurance guy. Always with the suit, uh, well, not the suit, but the, the white shirt and the tie. Exactly quarter after 11 every morning, he called his wife and talked to her for five minutes. On Thursday mornings, he called Harlan Ellison in California, and they chatted. Uh, never wanted to go to, to conventions, so even if the convention was next door, Julie wouldn't go. So he retired. His, his boss, Jeanette Kahn, took us all out to a Yankees game. I hate baseball, but it was nice to go to a professional game and see what it was. It hadn't changed much since I was a kid. Disappointment. Or as our president might say, sad. Yeah. Uh, but uh, as Julie told me the story, that he was at an editorial meeting. The curse of any 
creative person's life. And they were just talking, you know, they were doing the cowboy stuff and the funny animal stuff and the teenage stuff, I guess. And somebody at the table suggested that they try reviving one of the superheroes, popular character who had been out of print for 10 years. And that was the Flash, and Julie said, uh, they all looked at me, and I said, I guess I'm stuck. So... Julie, I think instinctively, I don't know how much of this he thought out, but he showed us, all of us who followed him, the way to do that job, which is not to, if if you had revived the Flash Barry Allen of the 40s, I guess early 50s, you'd have had, you know, that guy who looks like kind of baggy sweatsuits and an inverted hubcap on his head and wings on his sandals and he was the fastest man alive well that was probably dynamite material in 1940 when the character was was created but it it was dated and maybe not as good as it it could have been anyway so julie and an artist and a writer put together the new flash Everything was different except he was the fastest man alive. Backstory was different. Costume gimmicks was all brand new except for that one element. And they put it out, and Julie had one more idea. By the way, I don't know if if it was him or his people who had these ideas. If you've ever been to that kind of editorial meeting, at the end of the day, you don't know who had what idea. But the trick was to create an atmosphere where people could, you know, talk, talk it over, bullshit. We used to occasionally play pool at night. So, uh, Julie's background with science fiction and the idea of multiple Earths was, you know, already pretty common in Pulp SF. So, how are you going to explain that there's this Jay Garrick Flash, and there's also this Barry Allen Flash. Well, Julie's idea was there are two Earths, and occasionally they cross over. So they put it out, and it was a big, surprising success. So over the next year or so, Julie was given the job of reviving the D.C. Justice Society, uh, what we now call the D.C. Pantheon. Uh, I think Green Lantern was next, and instead of a guy who finds a magic lantern, he's a guy who finds a crashed spaceship. Very contemporary and a a much better idea uh, as a basis for stories. Uh, and all the rest of them, the, the Hawkman and the Hawkwoman and the Adam and, uh, I'm undoubtedly forgetting some, but it was all pretty successful. And DC's, you know, second, they came to life for a second time. Meanwhile, other side of Manhattan Island, uh, the way Stan tells the story, he was pretty tired of being a comic book guy, and he had it in his mind that he wanted to write a great American novel, or at least a good American novel. And he was married, it still is, I guess, to a really beautiful woman, a uh, British model and actress, Joni. And Joni said, well, as long as you're going to quit anyway why not write a comic book you would like to read? So that's what Stan did. That was Fantastic Four, number one. No costumes. Uh, broke a lot of the unwritten rules. For example, he had it take place in New York City instead of some fictional place. And uh, he also had 15 pages of one of his fantasy titles to fill. So he and Kirby and Ditko 
put together the Spider-Man, not taking it too seriously, but again, the kind of thing that Stan might want to actually read. And so he had two things out. They changed the name from Timely Comics to Mighty Marvel Comics, and Stan caught fire. It was like seven years he didn't have a bad idea or an idea that didn't work. And one of the insights he had was little sixth graders are not the natural audience for this stuff. They probably never have been. But you get the college audience. And that's what he did. He found that relatively sophisticated readers, one guy I talked to at a party was a psychiatrist who was a, you know, a Marvel reader. But these, particularly the college kids, they really took to this, partially, I think, because it was slightly anti-establishment, partially because, I don't know, it was a novelty. But this thing happens where things feed off each other. I think Stan began to really find his potential as a writer, and he had so much work to do that he devised or revived a way of writing comics that nobody remembered, which is instead of working from a script that looks something like a TV script, he uh, wrote a plot. It was eventually... I mean, I my, my plots were tended to be like three paragraphs. Doug Mensch's tended to be like 26 pages. But you found a way to do it, and you gave that to your artist, and he did the visual narrative, and you got back, well, just pencil drawings at first and later Xeroxes. And with that in hand, you wrote the copy to match the visual narrative and then you turn that in and the editor gave it to letterer letter gave it to inker and inker gave it to colorist and then it went to a printing press and that's the way almost all marvel comics were done that way i'm told few if any are done that way now it's a i always found it a pretty inefficient way to work oh really yeah, because one of the big problems from the 40s onward with comic books is people don't meet deadlines. Well, this way you add another stumbling block in the trip to the printing press. Uh, I didn't want to get stuck. This happened at least once, maybe more than that. Get stuck working overnight to get the job done because the damn penciler didn't do yeah, his job. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, I didn't want my work to be at the mercy of somebody else's. I have not changed my mind a bit about that. Uh, now, if you are coming into this as a fan, and some of those type people were creeping in through the back door, I mean... Roy and I always thought of it primarily as a job. But if you're a fan, and, gee, you get to play with Jack Kirby artwork, originals. Nobody else has ever seen these. Wow. Well, that's nice, but your job is to put copy on them and, and not look at them all night. Uh, so that that had been a big problem. Very early on when I worked for Dick Giordano at Charlton, I was given complete freedom as to how to how to write the scripts. And I started writing them. Well, what I did looked a lot like sloppy TV scripts. I, I work that way to this day, and now does, so does almost everybody else. So that was my conversion to another way of working. In the meantime, you know, there were all kinds of interesting jobs that started coming along. So, hey, um, did uh, you have a choice um, when you were working for Marvel in the 60s, whether you did it that Marvel way or full script? It was pretty much understood that you were going to do the Marvel method. I may have done one while well, working for Dick at Charlton. I did everything that way. 
working for Marvel, my understanding, correct or not, was that that was the way that we do it around here. So I did. It's The other problem is, um, particularly with young artists, they often think that it's about a guy in a cape bashing through walls. They are reluctant to draw those boring things that provide the story with its plot and its characters. Right. Uh, and so you w- would find yourself missing a, a crucial plot element because, I don't know, the artist forgot to draw it, the artist didn't feel like drawing it, uh, or the artist had a better idea for the ending of the story. Doug has a great story about working that way, and the the crucial MacGuffin in the story was a, a red car. A red car was parked on the street, and his hero, you know, had some interaction with it. So he gets the pencils back. No red car anywhere in the story. No red car. Hence, story is about nothing. Uh-oh. So he called the artist and said, "Well, shit, where's the red car?" And they said, "Oh, it's parked behind the building." Said the artist. <laughs> That's the kind of shit that you occasionally had to deal with if you worked that way. The advantage is, and Doug Doug still has his own version of that, that he, the way he currently works, is sometimes something in the art will inspire you with an idea you didn't have before. Sometimes something in the way the story is told will be better than what you had in mind, and the artwork will accommodate it. And if the artist completely fucks up and you get a gorilla where you're supposed to have an alligator, you can change the copy and the story to accommodate the gorilla. You probably spend a lot of time being pissed off as you rewrite it. But that happens. And that guarantees that you won't have a completely bollocks narrative. So I have great admiration for Doug because his job is to get the the story told as well as he can. He's very prolific and very hardworking guy. Anyway, that's how we stumbled into Marmaland. I don't know if even Stan works that way now, but... No one else does that I know of. Right. just doesn't make sense to go through all that extra trouble. And this wouldn't be a, a factor now, but it was back then. You fall asleep on the subway and you wake up and somebody's taking your artwork. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, those, those little catastrophes, you, you, you don't have to worry about that. Anyway, what I've been talking. <laughs> what, uh, <laughs> No, this has been a fascinating history. It's been really great. Uh, what I'd love to know is um, some of your early stuff with Marvel. Um, what were your experiences working with Stan and Jack? Um, I know one of the first things that you're credited for is just doing a script for Daredevil, number 18, that Stan didn't have time to I think finish. it was 17. Yeah, but yeah. Well, that was, Roy was supposed to write that, and he got buried, and... <laughs> I was breathing, so I was a good candidate to take that job over. Stan did a pretty thorough job of editing, more than he usually did. Uh, But it was just, you know, it was a job that had to be done. And I certainly, I liked the characters, so I was certainly happy to do it. But I can't say I ever really worked with Stan or Jack in the sense that you probably mean it. Right. I've had the same question come up about Frank Miller. Uh, I never worked with those guys, even Jim Apparel, whom I loved and I thought was really underrated as an artist. The The drill was, I wrote a script, it went to an editor who made such changes as he de- deemed necessary, that went to the artist, it went down the line, and it ended up at a printing press somewhere. I did not talk over the stories. The exceptions were the, some of the stuff I did with Frank. Right. But uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, which is commonly 
considered a co- tight collaboration between Neil and myself. Well, yeah, not really. Uh, we spent one day going around and talking to uh, drug counselors. And when we did the Ali job together, we went to Chicago and talked to, to talk to Ali. He had already left for Arizona. We talked to the head of the uh, black Muslims. I don't know why I can't think of his name. And, you know, had a pretty good time, went to the art museum and stuff. But uh, we didn't ever really collaborate in the way that Harry Peter collaborated with his writer, uh, William Marston, with Marston standing over his shoulder as he worked. There was nothing like that. Okay. It was, I do my job, you do yours, see you at Christmas. Right. So then you, um, is that similar? You you did a couple of, uh, I think, Doctor Strange issues in the 60s as well. So did you have a collaboration at all with uh, Ditko at the time? Oh, my God. <laughs> no, Ditko is a weight on my conscience. Because I don't <laughs> think there's anybody in this galaxy who has different politics than Steve Ditko and myself. And he is vehement. Yeah. He is not shy. So, uh, I feel bad about the question, but I did a, I, I did it, you know, 11 issues of Doc Strange with Ditko. I was Ditko, uh, Ditko's last official collaborator. Yeah. And I think we did that stuff Marvel style, which was not a bad idea because the advantage of Marvel style and comes along once in a while is if you get a Ditko or Kirby, uh, you have the advantage of a guy who really knows how to tell stories with pictures. You might end, they, they might do a better job than you'd have done. Right. So I never had any problems working with Steve, but he was, he was an objectivist and still is. Uh, his name has come up a lot recently, and I'm not sure why. He is a fiercely dedicated guy who will not accept money for the movies because that 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 character is not his Spider-Man. Uh, I've heard that he survives by doing odd jobs. But as far as I was concerned, I have a feeling that he didn't much like the Doc Strange stuff and next thing happened was that both he and I went to work for D.C., and one of the first things that Dick assigned me was his uh, cuddler... Uh, creeper? Guy with a fun... Creeper. creeper. Yeah. Right. And he did his usual very serious catching criminals because criminals have to be caught. And... I thought, you look at this character, and he's almost funny. So I took a different slant on the scripting of it. I had the spoken dialogue from the Creeper, kind of like Ditko's. But in the meantime, uh, Creeper is thinking, boy, that was a carny line. Hope nobody heard that. And <laughs> having a rather humorous attitude toward it himself. Steve must have hated that. The only contact I can remember having with him in those years was coming back from the March on Washington uh, and running into Steve in the office the next morning and his uh, railing against those hippies, those, you know, who the hell do they think they are? He was 100% for the war and I wouldn't change my mind about any of that today. On the other hand, I respect and admire his dedication. He really believes what he believes, and he's not afraid to fight for it, and that's kind of admirable. Yeah. But there was that, and then time passed, and lots of things happened in the comic book world and in my life, and I find myself... About 10 miles from where I'm sitting in Terrytown, New York, 
Walking back, we, we were having an editorial retreat. Very good tool for a an editor to have because you can get all your creative people together and get all of you on the same page. So I was walking back from dinner with Paul Levitz. I'd been a DC editor, had been hired to do Batman by Dick Giordano, and I'd been doing that for about six months. And... Uh, Paul, I, I, I was hired kind of as a hyphenate. It is not considered generally good practice to have a writer edit his own stuff. And I didn't, didn't edit much of it, but I was kind of exempt from that rule. So Paul said, when are you going to start writing for us? You did, and I said, um, I, I don't know, uh, well, what do you have for me to write? He said, well, we've just acquired the rights to Captain Adam and uh, the question and one of those other Charlton characters. Well, I immediately eliminated Captain Adam because he was a Superman kind of character, you know, juggles planets and that kind of thing. I've never been comfortable writing that. But the question, he was kind of Batman with a different suit. He was very human-level character. And I was told, do whatever you want with it. Your hands are absolutely empty. Do what you want. And I had six months to come up with a continuity. So that was a, probably the best offer I had ever gotten writing something that I would be paid for. Uh, so we went to work on it. I was sharing an office with Mike Gold, who was editor of it, and that helped a little bit. So we put it together. Uh, another artist, whom I think I will not mention, uh, told us on the day that the job was due that he hadn't started it yet. He, oh, by the way, is burning in hell now. I don't know if you know that, but so that was Dennis Cowan. I had mixed feelings about him, but uh, he was there and he had the job uh, a job open. So he inherited the question, really, literally beyond the last minute. And I went away and did lots of other stuff, and the question came out. There were glitches in the storytelling, but by and large, Dennis did a hell of a job. And this book became very popular overnight. So, I mean, even now at conventions, I get asked questions about. Uh, I get asked questions about the question, uh, even though, you know, he's been on the print for twenty years or something like that. <laughs> 